0: All right, welcome everyone. Very, very gratified to see you all here on a Saturday morning, taking time out of your busy schedules to discuss uh, the Lord's work. What a great uh, encouragement it is to me to know that we have not only this many folks, but uh, a few other stragglers who will be coming in this morning, and next week we'll have at least this many, uh, if not more, for our uh, second seminar on the 21st. So it's a great encouragement to me, and I want to commend you all. For taking the time out of your, I know, busy schedules, and especially when you got out this morning and you saw not a cloud in the sky, full sun, and you decided to come here anyway. And uh, we look forward to a good time as we discuss the Lord's work uh, together. I think uh, one of the reasons that I'm so encouraged by seeing you all here is that I, I believe you would agree it's a sign of God's goodness to our church and the health of our church. That you have this many folks who are, who are willing to uh, put this kind of time in. So uh, we're going to thank the Lord for what he's done for us and uh, commit our time to him. And then I'll tell you what we're going to try to accomplish in our time together. Okay? All right. Let's bow before the Lord. Okay? Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us, shown to us in so many, so many ways that we cannot recount. There are simply too many. Chief among them is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in in taking our sin upon himself and bearing our penalty as our substitute before you as an offering to you that you have fully accepted. And now because of him, we are fully accepted in you. We thank you, Lord, for all that flows then from the cross of Calvary in terms of blessings to your people. That we have now been changed, our values, our desires, our priorities have been rearranged, directed Godward now and no longer selfward. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit who convicts us and comforts us and, and illumines our minds to the importance, the significance of the truth that we learn from yet another of your gifts, your word. You've given us your truth, your revelation, you've made known yourself and ourselves and your plans for us. And Lord, in your word, you've told us what we're supposed to be doing. What our mission is for you in this world. And so despite the fact that we live in a fallen world with all of its travail, all its trials, all of its difficulties, Lord, we know that every moment of every day of what we are doing counts for eternity. Every day when we awake, Lord, we should remember that we are in a mission from God. And the things that we do in time will count for eternity. And Lord, all of this is because of you. I thank you, Lord, that you have worked in your good providence, in each of our lives, and our varied circumstances, to at this time and this place bring us together to carry out your work in this small part of your world. We thank you for what you have accomplished in us and through us. And Lord, we desire to be used going forward by you to see still others come to you and grow in you as we grow as well. And so Lord, we look forward with great anticipation to what you are going to do in the future in our church. We thank you for what you've done in the past. We thank you for what you are doing now. And we commit our future entirely to you. We ask to that end. Your blessing upon this time. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Thank you for the encouragement that they are to me and that they are to one another. I pray, Lord, that we would go from this place with renewed commitment then to work together shoulder to shoulder using the talents and abilities you have given us to carry on your work to bring glory to you through your church. We ask your blessing then on our time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you should have a notebook in front of you, all of you, and David. Those are safe, <laughs> or, or there anyway. You should have a notebook in front of you, and the first page of your notebook has a welcome. Welcome to the 2009 Servant Seminar. Thank you again for taking the time to come away from the cares of the workaday world to focus on the most important of issues: the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Each of our respective roles within it. And you've seen in our program in the weeks preceding uh, today, and I have for you in that top paragraph the subject, the theme of this year's seminar. It is, and you see it on the screen as well, Larry prepared for us a salt shaker. That's pouring on, that's a crowd of people there. So it's out of the salt shaker, community impact out of the, the salt shaker. And we have in the past done these servants' uh, seminars, actually retreats, starting back in five was our very first one. And we've covered a number of themes. This one is community impact out of the salt shaker. In the past, in five we looked at what it means to be a uh, healthy church. And then the following year, in 06, uh we looked at measuring the ministry, taking it to the next level, in 07 we looked at uh, the following year we looked at from impact to epicenter moving to the next phase and then we uh, looked at putting it all together becoming a process driven church last year we looked at strengthening the foundation and broadening the base I actually got those out of order they start in 04 through through 08 And so this is our sixth, then, of our Servants Seminars, and we're going to cover that theme, Community Impact Out of the Salt Shaker. And you see on that welcome page, we hope to hit on these three things in our brief time together. We want to be reminded of our vision, collectively, I hope, that we share to make an impact on our community. We want to look at some obstacles to achieving that vision, but also opportunities for making an impact through carrying out the steps necessary for our vision. And then we'll see some examples that we are going to be pursuing this year and in the future of making an impact. We're going to have a final session between 2 and 3 o'clock. You see in that second paragraph, it's going to provide vital information regarding newly developed procedures and policies that are designed to protect our church through emergency preparedness. So we've got a fairly elaborate system that a number of our folks have set up for that. You'll hear about it uh, because you need to know about it between the 2 and 3 o'clock hour, our final time together. And I say there it's our sincere hope that the retreat will provide spiritual refreshment that will help make us each, what the Bible says, instruments for noble purposes made holy and useful to the Master and prepared to do any good Work. You see our verse there, Colossians 1.28 uh, and 29, Colossians one twenty-eight is actually the theme verse for our church, that we proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's our goal, that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. And to this end, we labor together, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in us. And so our schedule is, as you see there, this first session will go for about uh, 35 40 minutes and then we'll take a break and we'll have a uh, session two in the notes to follow. We'll have a break for lunch and then session three at one o'clock and uh, I will have part of that but then uh, David's going to come with a presentation about an outreach event we have coming up. A final break and then Wayne is going to Wayne Albright's going to be here to talk about our emergency preparedness policies and procedures. So if you'll take a look at page number two, We'll go ahead and get started. At the top of page two, I call it the vision thing, and you notice that's in quotation marks. And the reason is because it is a quote. It's a quote from our 41st president, George Bush uh, Sr. You may remember that, uh, some of you may remember that during the uh, 88 campaign when he was running against uh, Dukakis, he was kind of harangued, Bush was, about a lack of vision. He hadn't articulated really what he wants to do as president. And he was following somebody, Ronald Reagan, who had laid out a very clear vision and, and pursued it. And so he was constantly asked, so what's your vision? And one, at one, one occasion he dismissively said, they keep harassing me about the vision thing. Well, the vision thing actually does turn out to be pretty, pretty important. Uh, we all go in the direction of our vision whether we consciously think about what that is or not. We're all moving in the direction of, uh, of where we have set our sights. I mean, I, I heard a guy talking about training his uh, teenage daughter to drive. Yeah. I've got a teenage daughter now. I don't like to think about it. And he says, you know, invariably, as he's, as he's trying to help her learn to drive, that uh, her eyes would drift off. And when her eyes drifted off, so did the car. She was going in the direction of her, of her vision, and we all do that. The best thing for us to do, though, is to consciously adopt our vision and then take steps to go there rather than simply having an unconscious, unintentional purpose, direction, and then sort of drift through life, which is what many individuals do, and unfortunately many churches do as well. And that's why every time we've had one of these retreats, we started with the vision thing. So if you look at the top of page 2, since 2004, we've had an annual servant's retreat for the purpose of discussing the Lord's work, and we've also had some fun together. I say in parentheses there in the past, it's been an overnight, and thus we called it retreat, to save expense, maximize participation. We've gone to this one-day seminar. So we're going to discuss the Lord's work. That's our main objective, probably no fun, though. At each of our retreats, we have started out with a vision of the future, and then we've discussed what needs to be done to get there. So let's take a few moments to think about what God can do through our ministry together. And each of those years, I've started out saying, imagine a Sunday afternoon in 2015. And I put that in writing for you, for us to look at a fictitious journal entry on a Sunday afternoon in 2015, November 8, 2015 to be exact. And I actually went through the calendar and November 8 is a Sunday in 2015. And this journal entry says, This afternoon we baptized 13 people, 10 adults, and 3 children. Now, when I first put that together in '04, I won't stop all the way through this, it's kind of long, but i just got to say here, when I put that together in '04, looking out to 2015 and said we were baptizing 13 people, 10 adults, 2 children, uh, I did not know that in '08, March of '08, last year, we would baptize 12 people nine adults and and three children. And so on that particular afternoon, we baptized at least, let's say, 13 people, ten adults and three children. Having joined the church, they've each received a welcome kit to help them plug into our church quickly. Their packet includes all necessary documentation, bylaws, protection policy for our children, description of our ministries, getting to know you in skills and abilities forms, discipleship track, philosophy of ministry, and so on. It also has our church's business cards with their name on it, offering envelopes, a spot to keep their certificates of completion for things like baptism, parent dedication, community institute classes, and on it goes. Now some of these folks who were baptized came to Christ through one of a dozen evangelistic home Bible studies that we have going on throughout Down River. Some were saved, but they had never been baptized. Others came to know Christ because we reached out to them in numerous what I call ministries of mercy, primarily counseling and support for situations like divorce, single moms, addictions, depression. These ministries are carried out by people in our church who are trained through organizations like the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation and Stephen Ministries, which runs divorce care and grief care. Some came to the Lord through those ministries, but still others came through our numerous other ministries designed to reach our community, sports, music, parenting classes, marriage classes. On a regular basis, we do weddings because people call to use our building. Just pause there for a second. (laughs) But we're looking in 2015. People call to use our building. Although the building's nothing fancy, it is relatively new. We've put a gazebo upon some cool landscaping on the other side of the creek. We send those who call a 10-minute DVD that explains the requirements and promotes the benefits of premarital counseling, including testimonies from folks who have been married in our church, Tony and Andrea, Vince, Melissa, Tom and Tammy, Alan, Janet, and others. We have 32 different ministries going on, and so our building, our ministry center, gets used all the time, seven days a week. It seems like just yesterday we were moving chairs at Summit, and then at Brownstown Middle School, and then at Patrick Henry and then back to Brownstown Middle School. The Biggs and the Martins are always inviting folks from Del Webb, which is, most of you know, the relatively new subdivision where they live across from our property. And that partly explains the growth in our senior ministry. And I've nominated Sue to be the activities director at Dell Webb in 2015. And our transition ministries, note that's in quotes, I call it transition ministries, but those ministries are helping and reaching folks as they prepare for transitions in life. The first baby, the teen years, young adult years, marriage, midlife, retirement. We have five prayer teams that commit to pray for various aspects of our ministry that we will continue to pursue our mission for our missionaries, for the unsaved, for those in our church family. And people in the community know us from our varied outreach and advertising, including our bi weekly column in the News Herald called By the Book. In addition to our ministries of outreach, we have multiple ministries of in reach. We've graduated our third class through our Community Institute. Those are people who have taken our foundational classes, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, the Discovery Series, Master Plan for Life, and then other core courses, Surveying the Old Testament, the New Testament, History Classes, Apologetics, and so on. These folks will continue to learn and grow in courses that are taught in the Institute until they die or Jesus returns. We have a resource center from which people can be referred to books, articles, websites, for just about any issue with which they they have an issue. Our follow-up ministry, just following up on people who are drifting or people who have been guests requires a number of people. Dozens of community groups are going on throughout Downriver. Our women's and men's ministries are growing. Two weeks prior to that, November 8, 2015 date, we had our second annual church health conference for pastors and leaders. This was put on jointly by our church, and two churches we planted, which are led by men that we trained. So one of the ways that we made room for new people into our church, we kicked people out to go plant those. We sent about 50 people to each of those plants, and God allowed us to give them substantial support for their first two years. But we had to, says the journal, go through a lot to get to that point. Some things we tried just didn't, didn't work out. We had to endure the pain of disciplining some disobedient members along the way. We've experienced the sweet sorrow of losing some brothers and sisters to this life, but we rejoice that they've gained their reward in the next. We've had to remain steadfast through the latest fads and trends that have blown through ministry, the entertainment church that bought the now vacant building at I-275 in Sibley. By God's grace, though, we've been able to Reach our Jerusalem so that now we plan for our next church plant soon. And we've transitioned from being an epicenter church, or to being, excuse me, an epicenter church that trains and sends out people for ministry, including hired interns from the seminary to keep the cycle going. Now, you're all turning to the next page. The one cardinal sin is for you to read ahead, all right? <laughs> That's the end of the vision thing. And I always ask when we get to the end of that at each of our retreats, I ask rhetorically, who's on, who's on board with that? And of course, I know the answer to that. I mean, I know that that has the same effect on you that it has on me. Oh Lord God, if you would allow us to be used to achieve even a good portion of those things. We may not be able to achieve all of them. In all likelihood, we will not. We'll have to make adjustments along the way. But Lord, if you would allow us to achieve a large portion of those together, we would be eternally grateful to have been a part of what you're doing in your world through our church. What does it take in order for that to happen? It's not enough to just put it on paper every year and say, wouldn't that be cool? It requires a number of things. It requires the Lord's blessing, of course. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer's labor is in vain. It requires His blessing, but it requires our participation. And so it requires that we have sustained, what I call sustained vision. We don't just pull it, trot it out once a year. But we actually say, this is what we're trying to do. What have we implemented? What do we still need to implement? What do we need to improve? What hasn't worked? Sustained vision. And it requires a third thing. And it's the reason that we need to come together at least once a year. And things like our quarterly family meetings. And if, if that's not a regular habit for you, I encourage you to make it a part of your regular habit to come to our one hour quarterly family meetings one of the things I try to do there is say here are some of the things we've accomplished here are some of the things we're looking to do over the next quarter because we need complete commitment from every one of us to do all that God gifts us to do in order to advance the mission that he's given to us 2015 now is of course coming closer every year here we are in two thousand nine. We started this thing in two thousand four. We're halfway, halfway there. The good news is God has allowed us to make great progress in moving toward these goals, but there's still still much to do. So I ask you all this question on the assumption that you buy in, and I'm that's a safe assumption. You're here. You would love to see something like that be our picture. That journal entry be reality on November 8, thousand fifteen. But that being the case, I ask you all this question what what could keep us from getting there? I'm asking you. Just think about. It. What kinds of things could keep us from getting there? What do you think? What kinds of things could keep us from getting to that vision, that journal entry, on November eight of twenty fifteen? What kinds of obstacles? What could keep us from getting there? Sir. You leave to take a bigger church? Okay. Uh that might hasten the times. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for the vote of confidence. I appreciate it. Complacency. Yeah, or was that wishful thinking? I don't know. <laughs> What's that? Complacency. Okay. So David says uh you know, complacency. And you know, just back, I mean some sort of problem or shake up in leadership would would harm and generally does. You know, sometimes churches then take a long time. You know, I know one church it took them three years to find a replacement pastor. Now they have, and they're they're moving ahead. And I'm thankful for that. But that can set you back for I can set you back for a while. Not just the pastor, but any sort of shake-up problem, disunity in, in leadership, can really adversely affect the church. So that's one. Complacency, uh, David is saying. You know, uh, I can do something about you know, as God uh, allows. Uh, the leadership issue and the leadership team can can do something about that as we resolve to be unified and consistent in our leadership of the church. And our own complacency, but this is the kind of thing what David has said, where we all come in. Complacency, would you guys agree? Complacency will keep us from getting there. If to put it another way, we're satisfied. If we're satisfied. With where we are, we will not do what's necessary to get where God could take us. We become complacent. What else? Not sharing the Okay. Thank you. Carolyn says, we stop sharing the gospel aggressively. So, that means we're not seeing people come into the church. And so we see each other on a regular basis, and that's all great. I, and I'm, I say this absolutely sincerely. I love you people. I love seeing you folks. And I know you love each other. And God has blessed us with that. But He has also called us to love people we haven't met yet. With the Gospel. And if we become complacent, in that we are ingrown because we're satisfied with the family atmosphere and the love we have for one another. A great gift to be sure. But a gift to be used in order for us to use the strength it provides to reach still others through the Gospel. Yes? Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and one of the reasons, thank you, one of the reasons that uh, we come away and ask you to come, again, thank you, get away from the phone and, and just have some hours of sustained focus upon that, because it's easy to forget it, isn't it, because we all are flying, man, you've got a zillion responsibilities, you've got the kids, you've got work, you've got, uh, you know, upkeep of the house, you've got, you know, shoveling Two feet of snow. How many times this past winter? Thank the Lord that's over with <laughs> for now. You know, and, you know, just just sickness, man. All kinds of stuff, and then we forget what am what am I about. So it's easy then to lose the priority of our individual involvement and commitment to the Lord's the Lord's work. Well, there's all kinds of things that could keep us from doing that. Go ahead. If I see a building and 2015. That, that's going to take some money. Okay, so not having money. All right. Okay. Yeah. Good. However, I'm I will. Say, <laughs> <now>. <laughs> I will. I will just say that what Ed is saying is okay. Well, then is it is is, an, is the building, is the building crucial, to what you do, in this vision of 2015? You notice I had it in there. You know, we have a ministry center and people get married there and we're using it all the time, but. The, the truth of the matter is, uh, I don't have any earthly idea whether we'll be in a building in 2015. I don't, I don't know that. Uh, in, a, in a church building on our property on Easter Road. I don't know that. So here's what we have to resolve to do. We have to resolve to say that we will not allow facility to keep us from moving our vision forward. That the facility will help us move our vision forward. But a lack of facility is not going to keep us from moving our our vision, folks. So, by God's grace, we'll pursue it. And if we can, if we can get there, then we'll thank the Lord for that, and we'll use it for pursuing this vision. But the answer to your question is that's not going to keep us from getting there. Okay? That will not keep us from getting there. We will do other things, other creative things. Like, you want to know what? Like, we'll move to California and we'll set a tent up. You can meet in a tent all year in California. <laughs> Okay, that that one will work. Let's try something else. Actually, there was a church out there that did that. It didn't. (laughs) No, but, you know, stuff like, you know if if we're not able to build our own building in that time frame, so be it. So we use buildings like a school, and we rent what we rent for our all-church meetings. And we have all-church meetings twice a week, Wednesday and Sunday. And then for your other five days a week, you lease something else, where you can have ministry going on all the time, where you can have these classes going on, where you can have Bible studies going on, a ministry center where you simply have administrative offices and classes where you can carry those kinds of kinds of things out. And if you had, if you just had, five, if you had 5,000 square feet of that, plus then you were renting for your all church meetings on on Sundays and Wednesdays, you can carry out everything I'm talking about. Okay, so that's one alternative to it. Sharon, did you have your hand up? Discouragement. Okay, and uh, the, how how discouragement Sharon says, and, and how are the ways you might get discouraged? No, no. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or let me put it another way: not listening to what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> that would be another way. <laughs> but listen now. We make a huge mistake, a huge mistake, if we allow ourselves to allow, and let me say it this way, a brick and mortar to discourage us from carrying out the vision that God has given us. It would have been foolish, would be foolish for the leadership of our church not to pursue that. It's only wisdom to try to pursue that. But it would be folly at its height for me, our leadership team, or any of us to allow brick and mortar to have us become discouraged about moving the Lord's work forward. Think about why. The first three centuries of the church, guess who had buildings? In many parts of the world where most of the population lives, they don't have buildings. They have to meet it. There are a billion people in China try to construct a Baptist church building in China. They have the underground church there. I had the privilege, you all know, of training some of those underground church leaders. <clears throat> so the church has moved forward in marvelous ways without buildings only because its people have become creative. Now, we, we can become discouraged. I appreciate you bringing that up if we lose sight of what I just said. Let's not do that then. That's why I say it. We also can become discouraged if that complacency that keeps all of us from working together means... That a few of us carry out the work of the ministry, that becomes discouraging. If we if we fall into the 20% of the people in our church do 80% of the work, you're dead. Now, thankfully, we've got we've got 80% of our people involved in some respect, in some aspect of the ministry right now. But we have to make sure that all of us are continually involved in the work; otherwise, it'll result in discouragement for those who uh, for those who stay involved versus those who do not. All kinds of things that could keeping us keep us from, from getting there. To hear this. These kinds of things that we're laying out here as potential obstacles, they're potential and they're very they're very real as well. Get this statistic. Eighty percent eighty percent of evangelical churches right now in America, eighty percent, are either have either plateaued or they are declining. Eighty percent have plateaued or are declining. That is, they've stayed the same for several years or they're moving backwards. Now, even for those that have stayed the same for several years, guess where? Well, they'll be in a few years, moving backwards. 80%. Tomorrow, a church that I know very intimately, a church, not our parent church, but a church I know very well, a pastor I know very well, tomorrow, they're having a family meeting. This church has been declining for several years. They're having a family meeting tomorrow, the outcome of which I do not know. It is vi- the, the future of that church is very uncertain right now. So, it, it, it can happen. And so we need to take those obstacles very, very seriously. Now, let me ask another question. How should we measure our success? And for time, I'll just answer that. How should we then measure our success in pursuing this vision? Now hear this. It's not. We will not measure our success at pursuing that vision based on whether or not we would achieve everything that I said there. Truth is, we may not be able to achieve everything I said there. And it turns out in my own notes here, not making this up, I had the building as an example. You know, the truth is we don't know if we'll have the, the building. But we're not going to measure our success by whether or not We achieve every aspect of what I laid out in that November 8, 2015 vision. How should we? Here's how we'll measure our success. Have we, collectively, have we done all, have we all done all that we can to pursue that vision? When we come to November of 2015, I want to be able to look back and say, I did all that I can To move in the direction of the vision that the Lord has given us. And you want to be able to say. I did all that I can. To move us in the direction of the vision that the Lord has given us. And if we have our servant seminar in 2015. And we're able to say that. Then no matter where we are at that time. The Lord will be pleased. Because we've done all that we can for Him. And we should be pleased as well. So how are we going to measure our success? It's not going to be that everything that I say I would like to see happen, that we agree we would like to see happen, has to occur. The only issue for us is this. If we agree on it, then let's do it. And let's give everything that we have to see it happen. And then let's see what the Lord does. And I believe that's going to mean some very exciting things for our church. Decline, decline can happen to any church. 80%, I told you, church tomorrow, family meeting, a decline can happen to any church. So when's the best time? Guys and gals, when's the best time for a church to address the issue of potential decline? When's the best time to do it? Before it happens, right? Because it experiences the best teaching, especially when it's somebody else's experience. In other words, we know from experience, other people's experience, what happens? So let's learn from that. And let's avoid it then ahead of time. So please understand, and I think you all know this, but just know, I'm addressing these things to a full room of people, thank God. But here's my point. Six years from now, if we don't address these sorts of issues, this room will not be full. We will be discouraged. We will be complacent. And so the best time to address it is long before it happens. Our church is still growing, numerically and spiritually. Last year at one of our family meetings, I was asked, you know, uh, how, how have we grown this year versus last year? And I said, I think 10%, but I went back and checked and I sent out an email to everybody. Most of you probably got that, that, that verified that. But you need to understand, you know, that where our church is right now, just in terms of its, its size, moderate size, is a very dangerous zone. Very dangerous. Why? Because it's pretty cool. You know, you got you got you're paying the bills. You know, you're paying the pastor. We all. It's not too big, so we can know each other, but it's big enough so we can get some stuff done. And and that sort of 200 to 250 level is where a lot of churches, if they ever get there, if they ever get to that stuff, they stay there, plateau, and eventually climb. And so it's a, very, it's a very dangerous level for us, and so I think it is wise. Obviously, I think it's wise. That's why we're doing that. And the Bible warns of this issue of decline, and that's on page 4. You may turn the page. At the top of page 4, I have there a warning for the ages, and it's taken from the example of the church at Ephesus in the Bible. You all know we have a book called Ephesians, written to the church at Ephesus, but you probably you may not know the full history of this church. It's really quite an extraordinary history and also quite an extraordinary warning for those of us who would seek to do ministry in the uh, 21st century. Top of page four, at one time during the first century, the church at Ephesus was one of the greatest in the world. It was one of four influential epicenter churches, along with those at Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome. The Apostle Paul founded it. All right? That in itself gives you a pretty cool celebration dinner. <laughs> Our founder was the Apostle Paul, right? And he had Silas and Aquila and Priscilla, these other characters from the Bible. He stayed there for three years, longer than any other church. The great preacher Apollos was discipled in Ephesus. And as many as thirteen other churches were started in the regions surrounding that that ministry. One circumstance in Acts nineteen reveals how effective those young believers were in influencing the culture around them. False religion, especially the worship of the Greek god Artemis, Greek goddess Artemis, had been big business in Ephesus. Shrines, statues, other paraphernalia were some of the city's primary commodities. As the church grew, so many people were being saved from false religion. The idol industry went into recession the impact of the church was so significant in fact that local craftsmen became afraid they might be out of a job they even incited a riot in a desperate attempt to drum up support for pagan worship in their town a similar situation developed earlier in Thessalonica where the unbelievers in the community were saying about the apostles quote these men have upset the world who have upset the world have come here also The impact of the believers at Ephesus could be described the same way. They were, quote, turning the world upside down, as the King James translation says. So Ephesus was this great church in its early days, making a difference for the Lord in its community and in the world, but Paul knew it could not rest on its laurels. When he said goodbye after those three years to the leaders of that church, he warned them of the need to stand strong in the face of difficulties that would come. Here's what he said. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Be on your guard. And sure enough, the false teachers, ego-driven leaders, began to afflict the church after Paul left. And that once great church began to decline. Now, note this. The sad process of going from flames to embers had begun by the time the apostle wrote his first letter to Timothy. In that letter, he says to Timothy, Stay in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines. Now, just follow, though, make sure you follow along. Paul founds it. He's helped by Silas and Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos is discipled there. They're turning the world upside down. And still in a church like that, they begin to have these problems. So much so that Paul's prized protege, Timothy, is sent to Ephesus to lead that church. And he says to Timothy, I want you to stay there in order to, among other things, correct these problems that have occurred in this church. So they got Paul, they got Apollos, they got Timothy. Top of page 5. But despite this instruction from Paul and the best efforts of Timothy, the church at Ephesus eventually did reach another low point of decline. In the last book of the New Testament, Jesus himself warned that the church was about to be judged by God if it didn't turn around. One of the seven churches addressed in in Revelation 2 and 3 is none other than the church at Ephesus. And here it is. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. False. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And, and were they at the height? But remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Apparently, Timothy's ministry to revitalize that church from Paul's instruction did have some positive effect, especially in the area of doctrine, And because Jesus commends the church for their discernment regarding false believers. But they had, Jesus told them, left their first love, and they had fallen into dead orthodoxy. So much so that Jesus says, if this continues, your lampstand, your light for the gospel will be removed you all, I mean, you see it in the Word of God here. And you've seen it in experience, haven't, haven't you? It's possible to just go through the motions and lose your first love. So we're just doing stuff, but we forget why and for whom. We're doing it dead orthodoxy. And when that happens, a church is on a sure road to decline. Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Revelation in italics there, if the presence of Christ's grace and spirit be slighted, we may expect the presence of His displeasure. He will come in a way of judgment, and that suddenly and surprisingly upon impenitent churches and sinners. He will unchurch them, take away His gospel, His ministers and His ordinances from them, and what will the churches do when the gospel is removed? Again, this is, you know, we're not, We're not there by any means. We're just trying to use wisdom to never get there. And what will the churches do? Well, some will shut their doors. That would actually be the best thing. Or some will try a new gimmick and keep going without their first love. And we have many churches doing that. They're still going, but they're doing it by gimmick, not with the centrality of Christ and His Gospel, which is the first love Jesus is referring to. That horrible fate, last paragraph, was about to befall these believers if they did not turn things around. But Jesus did not say the church was without hope. Instead, He provided a paradigm, a basic plan for revitalization of the church. He told us that a body of believers can arrest its decline, go from embers back to a flame if its leadership will teach the congregation to do these three things. This is what Jesus said. Remember the heights. Remember where you were. Repent. And now do those first things. Recover is the idea. Well, I maintain that I agree with Carolyn Osborne who said a bit ago, if we stop giving the Gospel, we, if we stop being enthusiastic about giving the Gospel and reaching people with it, we will decline. And I would add, if we stop doing that, we should decline. And if we stop reaching people with the gospel of Jesus, ultimately we should shut doors. But we're talking about this in order to keep that from happening. A first love church, a first love church is a gospel-driven church. It's driven beyond its complacency. It's driven beyond its satisfaction and the status quo to say, let's reach increasing numbers of people in our community, so that we can continue to be a flaming light for Jesus, both here and abroad. So, in our next session, that's what we want to talk about. Okay. Remember. Let's remember what we're about. We're not remembering from where we've fallen, we haven't fallen. But we've all agreed, this is the best time to keep that from happening. So we'll remember what we're about. And we'll renew our commitment to moving in the direction of our vision. And then we will uh, recover Uh, some of the things, give some ways to recover some of the things that perhaps in some of our lives are in the process of being lost. Okay, We'll do that in our next session. And it is 10.50. And I said this session would go until 10.50. And we will come back at 11.10. Take a break.